MSW Media. News was Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Tuesday, October 20th, 2020. Today, Forbes is out with a new debt number for the president at nearly a billion dollars, making him even more of a national security threat than previously known. Black police officers break with unions on Trump endorsements, the real task force plan for herd immunity, and a federal judge strikes down Trump's attempt to kick 700,000 people who are jobless because of Trump off their food stamps. I'm your host, AG, and with me today is Dana Goldberg. Hello, Dana. How are you? I am good. It is so good to be back. And you know what? Two weeks, two weeks, deep breath, two weeks, Jesus Christ, two mm. weeks from today. <laughs> we're gonna be okay. Everyone's gonna be okay. I need to get my Xanax prescription refilled probably just for another week. I think uh, um, it'll get me through. I'm okay. Mm-hmm. 14 days. Let's see. Let's see if we go here. Carry the one. That is 1.27 Scaramucci's until the election. Uh, well, until, I mean, people, we've already had 25 million people, maybe more, vote. I think more. I think we're almost at 30 now. Like we were at 28.5 <sighs> yesterday or 27.5 yesterday. Oh. Yes, I feel good. Yeah, I've been hiding under blankets today. So <laughs> I, <laughs> it's really weird. That's amazing. 30 million. Uh, that's that's half as many people voted for Trump. Other new interesting number, more people have filed for unemployment than voted for Trump in 2016. Jesus. So that's interesting. Oh. Um, today is a great show. I'm going to be talking to Democratic candidate for California's 8th district. Big, beautiful district, including Victorville. If you've ever driven from Los Angeles or San Diego to Vegas, that big, beautiful stretch of Mojave Desert uh, between us and uh, there is is that district. district, And it's one of the last ones that we need to flip from red to blue in California. And Chris Bubser, she's running as the Democratic candidate in that district. Uh, and I am back with Andrew Torres, friend, real life friend, real life lawyer, from Opening Arguments on the latest uh, information. We This is amazing. And, and we can talk about this for a second. But both sides that fought on Obergefell have come out against the seating of Amy Coney Barrett on the Supreme Court. Wow, that's amazing, because I believe one of those lawyers, even though they fought for Obergefell, is not liberal. Mm -mm. Yeah. Mm -mm. Both sides are like, yeah, no. Um, Amazing. You know, I fought... Against Obergefell, uh, you know, I'm on the side that doesn't want gay marriage, and I still think she's like a little too much. That's pretty much what they're saying. So, oh my God, thank you for clarifying. That's what they were saying because when you started that sentence, I was like, Allison, what do you mean you're not on the side? I had a little meltdown in my head. I'm like, Jim's a friend of mine. I will come for you. (laughs) All right, both sides, both sides. Uh, and so we're going to, Andrew and I are going to talk about that. We're going to give a little history on Obergefell in case you didn't know. And, um, I, I think most of, most of the listeners do, but just in case, um, there's some really interesting things going on that play into the dynamics of the fact that both are, uh, against seating Amy Coney Barrett. So that's the show today. It's going to be good. We do have a lot of headlines, uh, to get to. So, uh, let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. 
I'm going to start off. We've got black officers break from unions over Trump endorsements. Now, this one, I believe, is a really powerful story. Police unions nationwide have largely supported President Trump's reelection amid mass demonstrations over police brutality and accusations of systemic racism. But a number of black law enforcement officers are speaking out against these endorsements, saying that their concerns over entering the 2020 political fray were ignored. Really? You think? Maybe falling on deaf ears? Okay. Uh, Many fraternal black police organizations were formed to advocate for equality within police departments, but also to focus on how law enforcement affects the wider black community. There have often been tensions between minority organizations and larger unions, like in August when the National Association of Black Law Enforcement Officers issued a letter condemning the use of deadly force, police misconduct, and abuse in communities of color. No shit. The craziest thing to me, Allison, on this is that people forget the police department as a whole was created as a racist organization. And let me tell you what I mean by that. If you're like, what are you talking about as a listener? Oh, I know. I know what you. Oh, yeah. I'm like, oh, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Of course, you know. Yeah, and I'm sure your listeners know. This was recre- this was recre- created like in a situation that slavery still existed. Police officers were a voluntary force to protect what? Property. The only people that owned property when this volunteer police department was formed were white, straight, old men. This this mm-hmm. racism has been instilled in our police department. So to think that that does not to be to be addressed is insane. And also to think that our black police officers are just going to go along with the status quo because they're part of you know organizations is insane. So I love that they are starting to break rank, and I love mm-hmm. that they are speaking out against this administration. I mean, how shitty. Does your union have to be when people <laughs> form unions against your union? Like, how, like, come on. I mean, t- yeah. Hey, yeah. Okay. So that's um, good. I'm glad they're breaking rank. I don't even understand. I don't like police unions, but that may be. I, I don't think I'm alone there. Yeah. Well, I think a lot, you know, my, my mom and I talk about this and a lot, you know, not all, but a lot of police officers are ex-military. They go into the police force when they come out of the military because our country does not take care of our veterans and they need to get back to work. Well, a lot of these people are trained shoot to kill. Well, that creates a problem when you're working in societies where that's not supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. But, you know, on the on the flip side of that, too, a lot of veterans have training in not to do that correct i i think i would would love to do a study like a like a case study some sort of dissertation i've you know i've I've done one maybe i can do another one maybe i can get funding let's get a grant uh how many of these cops who have repeated offenses uh i mean first we'd have to get the records from the police unions that are guarded like with lock and key but how many of them that use excessive force or racial profiling or have actually murdered people uh especially uh black people how many of them were former military or how many of them couldn't get into the military that's a better question i think that's a better question yep I think that is, and and you know so much more about this in this specific aspect than I do. I would love to see that study. And sort of use this as a like, well, I need to blow shit up, so I'm going to blow people up. Right, bro? (laughs) Um, I just, I have a feeling that it's more that, you know, than anything else. Um, All right. Well, here, uh, thank you for that story. Now new from the Washington Post, Dr. Burke's scarf lady. Uh, has gone to Pence's office, the task force, to push for Scott Atlas's removal. Scott Atlas is the MRI doctor. He can take a picture of your neck. 
uh, and he is the, Trump's foregoing or foregoing like for like expert, like number one expert on on the coronavirus, even though he doesn't know anything about epidemiology. He's pushing herd immunity to the president. There were reports a couple months ago when he joined the task force that he was actually like promoting herd immunity. Let let it rip through the country and two, two to four million people will die and then then we'll be done with it and we can just move on. Oh, and. Lord. When people question him about that, he's like, no, absolutely not. I'm not saying that. Well, watch what they do, not what they say, right? Uh, Atlas shot down attempts to expand testing. He openly feuded with other doctors on the task force and succeeded in largely sidelining them, including, including Burks and Fauci. He advanced fringe theories like social distancing and mask wearing were meaningless and would not have changed the course of the virus in several hard-hit areas when it's proven that they have. He advocated following infections uh, to spread naturally, like I said, among the population while protecting the most vulnerable and those in nursing homes until the U.S. reached herd immunity, which experts say would cause excess deaths. It's four to it's two to four million, some some <laughs> estimate even higher uh, deaths, not cases, deaths. Uh, Atlas cultivated Trump's affection with the with his public assertions that the pandemic is nearly over, right? Despite the curve, say just facts, numbers say otherwise. Um, and of course, Scott Atlas's will willingness to tell the public that the vaccine could be developed by November 3rd, despite clear indications that's stupid. Um, discord on the coronavirus task force has worsened since the arrival of Atlas late in the summer, whom colleagues say they regard as ill-informed, manipulative, and dishonest. And as the White House coronavirus response response coordinator Burks is tasked with, this is Deborah, you know, scarf lady, with collecting right. and analyzing infection data and compiling charts detailing upticks and other trends. But Atlas routinely has challenged Burks's anal analyses <laughs> and uh, those Burks eye and those Berksi. of those doctors, <laughs> including Fauci uh, and CDC director Robert Redfield and FDA commissioner Stephen Hahn. With that of other doctors considered, they all say he's junk science. And this is according to three senior administration officials. And on Saturday. Jesus. Yeah, he's a tool. I thought demon semen doctor was bad. And apparently that you've got this going on. I mean, but whatever. Whatever happened to the demon semen lady? I don't know. Huh. Maybe. I mean, she's probably, I don't know, maybe reading cards somewhere. And listen, I know there's people that are very good at reading cards, but this woman actually said that they were using alien DNA to make vaccines. It's insane. And Trump was like, retweet. Okay. Okay. Don't drag card readers into this, Dana. She's I know. Nuts. That's why I apologized already ahead of the time. I was like, some <laughs> like, card reader, there's going to be a psychic listening to this podcast that's going to write in a correction. I, I knew it was coming. Like I can feel the emails. Um, this Saturday, Atlas Scott Atlas tweeted, masks do not work. And Twitter had to remove the tweet for violating its safety rules. The fucking head, Trump's doctor on the task force, has been removed from Twitter for violating safety rules for spreading misinformation about COVID. Several medical and public health experts flagged the tweet as dangerous misinformation coming from a primary advisor to the president. And of course, Trump supporters call this censorship. It's actually gotten to the point where they call disputing lies censorship. They're sh we're shutting down their alternative facts. I'm just laughing because I saw one of the videos from Trump Jr. and he looks like he's doing an Instagram story from inside a coffin. And he's just yeah. completely drugged up. And he's like, I don't know. They're not sharing my stories on Instagram. I must have pissed off the Instagram gods. And I'm like, oh, my God, please get help. Please just have an intervention. 
I know. Have you have you seen the Project Lincoln ad where he's like, uh, it's my dad is the president, cocaine. I really yeah. need, you know. <laughs> I can't deal. All right. Mm. More headlines, though. This one is we had a, fe- a federal judge has denied Trump's plan. And this is beautiful. A federal judge has denied Trump's plan to kick off 700,000 off food stamps. And why? Because he botched the pandemic response. All right. A federal judge on Sunday formally struck down a Trump administration's attempt to end food stamp benefits for nearly 700,000 unemployed people, blocking as arbitrary and capricious. The first of three such planned measures to restrict the federal food safety net. Now, just a side note, um, a lot of people that had to get food stamps actually work in the food service industry, but because they are tipped workers... And there's only seven states in this country that have a living wage. Tipped workers didn't actually qualify for unemployment. It's infuriating. You've got organizations like One Fair Wage that are trying to raise money so that these people can get some sort of help. A lot of these 700,000 people are actually the people serving you food. Unbelievable. Anyway, In a scathing 67-page opinion, Chief U.S. District Judge Beryl A. Howell of D.C. condemned the Agriculture Department for failing to justify or even address the impact of the sweeping change on states, saying its shortcomings had been placed in stark relief amid the coronavirus pandemic, during which unemployment has quadrupled and rosters of the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program have grown by more than 17%, with more than 6 million new enrollees. and like a lot of these people that work in the food service industry, they're women and they are single mothers. They are exponentially more affected by this pandemic. Mm-hmm. And and there are just just for uh, all the Republicans who listen, I just want to make sure you know that there are about 35,000 active duty service members and their families on food assistance and SNAP. But he loves the military. He loves the military and the veterans. All right. The rule at the rule in a quote at issue in this litigation radically and abruptly alters decades of regulatory practice, leaving states scrambling and exponentially increasing food insecurity for tens of thousands of Americans. Howell wrote, adding that the agriculture department quote has been icily silent about how many adults would have been denied SNAP benefits had the changes sought been in effect while the pandemic rapidly spread across the country. Had we known that the pandemic was going to rapidly spread across the country, had this administration done their fucking job. Anyway, (sighs) namaste. The judge concluded that the department's... (laughs) Yes. The judge concluded that the department's utter failure to address the issue renders the agency action arbitrary and capricious. Thank God. God, do I love Judge Beryl Howell. Thank you for doing the right thing. At least there are some moments of brightness and there are some people being held to account, uh, held to account during this pandemic. She's yeah. Judge Beryl Howell is awesome. She continues to do this shit too. She's like, I'm sorry. We increased SNAP by 17%. There's 6 million new enrollees because your ass doesn't fucking understand coronavirus and Dr. MRI neck man fuck face wants to (laughs) fucking tell everybody not to wear masks. And so everybody's on food assistance now and now you want to kick people off the food stamps sorry i she's very kind by saying arbitrary and capricious i'm like that is fucking nazi bullshit is what that is (laughs) maybe i mean she's very professional she's a judge and i love her but uh (laughs) 
damn. I mean, utter failure to address the issue renders the agency action arbitrary and capricious. And that is, those are harsh words for a judge, I have to say. It's yeah. like when Judge Reggie Walton called Bill Barr, uh, you know, that he's saying that he lacked candor and his credibility wasn't, uh, you know, very good because of what he did with the Mueller report. I just, I love when judges have harsh words like this. And, and, it's just nice. This this actually takes me back to the quote in Mary Trump's book that basically if Trump can somehow benefit off your death, he will do it and then pretend that you didn't die. It's the same thing as people yeah. starving to death. It's the same thing. Yeah. It's just the it's it's the cruelty is the point for him. Period. Yeah, he'll facilitate it. He'll help facilitate it and then not be sad about it and just yeah. collect whatever prize that he gets for it. Let's see here. What what, what what next? What do we have next? Uh, this is, oh, our last story. It's from Forbes. Okay. Uh, and this story says Trump actually is in debt about a billion dollars. <laughs> Wait, is this, is this the same Forbes magazine that Stormy Daniels smacked him on the ass with when they were? Is this the same publication? It's the same publication. Is Was Ivanka on the cover? I think Trump was actually on the cover. Stormy Daniels, Trump asked Stormy Daniels to smack him in the ass with a Forbes magazine with his face on the cover <laughs> during their sexual interlude. Uh, <laughs> okay. I know. <laughs> Sorry, listeners. Sorry. Uh... <laughs> I didn't mean to throw you off there, AG. Yes, the same Forbes ma- magazine. Yeah, that's okay. Um, anyway, yeah, I mean, there's been some incredible stories, but I'll get into this Forbes shit in a minute. But did you know, like, a judge actually, or no, the Department of Justice has actually written a brief in support of Trump's lawsuit. He's being sued for defamation by E. Jean Carroll. Right. Uh, and that lawsuit's been allowed to go forward. And apparently the Department of Justice is weighing in on behalf of Trump because, you know, the Department of Justice, Bill Barr is his personal lawyer. And they're actually saying legally that because he lied about raping her while he was president, it's totes cool. No. He's t- he's, yeah, that's their position. Oh and, which God. sounds like they are admitting he lied about raping her. But whatevs. <laughs> That's what they're saying. Quit splitting hairs. Would you quit splitting his fake orange hairs? I have no idea. I know. I know. I know. Now, Forbes, like I said, it, it, we thought Trump owed a $421 million. I knew it was more, but I didn't know, and I didn't. I, it was just a feeling. Well, Forbes says now it's nearly a billion dollars in debt, which is all of it coming due in his next term in the next four years if he's reelected. Um, lenders will expect his businesses to pay back an estimated $900 million in the next four years. Now, like I said, we knew about the 420 from the New York Times, uh, which are loans to from Deutsche Bank for the D.C. hotel, his golf resort in Miami, and his tower in Chicago. Uh, he'll also have to sort out the debt against Trump Tower and Trump Plaza in New York City. And the rest of the loans are held against 1290 Avenue of the Americas in Manhattan and 555 California Street in San Francisco, office buildings in which the president has a 30% limited partnership interest. Those properties currently have a combined $1.5 billion in debt against them, and Trump's, and Trump's indirect share of their liabilities adds up to an estimated $447 million. As a limited partner, however, he presumably has less control over those obligations, as well as some protection if the properties fail to pay back their loans. You know what limited means. Limited is to liability, Trump explains in a 2015 interview in Forbes, adding, yeah, thanks, fucking genius, for explaining what limited liability means (laughs) when you're a limited liability corporation. 
Thanks for that. I appreciate that. I'm sure it's like he coined the phrase. What was it? The pump the prime the pump. That was my phrase. I coined that. Uh, and he said to the Financial Times. Okay. I feel like that's on his. That's on like Lindsey Graham's uh, <laughs> grinder account. I feel like that's the quote on the, anyway. <laughs> You know what limited means? Limited as to liability, Trump explained in a 2015 interview with Forbes, adding, where that is good is in bad times. If the world collapses, I'm not responsible for putting up any money. That's that's his description of what limited liability means. Allison, he's going to fake his death. I'm t- I'm so convinced he's going to fake his death. He owes a billion dollars. Ah, uh, yeah. I think what's going to happen, he's going to have some, he's going to get a whole bunch of money by selling off a bunch of shit. Sure. uh, Last minute. Uh, The problem is Deutsche Bank's not going to lend him anything. So he's going to have to either uh, unload a bunch of stock and junk bonds if he has them, if he hasn't already, you know, like right before the pandemic hit when everyone else did the big sell off before the government told the public about it. Uh, I mean, either... I don't know where he has money left. Uh, I don't know how many favors he has left. I don't even know if he wanted to flee to Russia if they'd let him. Like, he's not only in debt monetarily, but he's used up all of his favors. Oh, absolutely. Not to mention all the lawsuits that uh, the, you know, the great state of New York has against him the moment he steps out of office. That's why when he, at, you know, at these rallies, Trump has this thing where he says the truth out loud. And I, let me let me get to that, because a lot of you are like, what the fuck is Dana talking about? He actually says the inside part out loud when he was like, if I lose, mm-hmm. I'm going to leave the country. Well, you know what? He probably is. He's going to flee to Russia. So he's safe. He's like, you'll never see me again. And then the, one of his last rallies, he was like, I can raise money if I wanted to. I could raise a billion dollars. I'm like, really? That's interesting that he chose a billion dollars, since that's how, how much money he apparently owes to different people. <laughs> I he know, right? He says it out loud. He says the just, quiet part out loud. Have to listen close enough and he'll tell you exactly what he's done and he might have already made the deal for his exile right we have a 380 billion dollar arms deal with saudi arabia maybe they offered him a place to live after he's voted out and that's a non-extradition treaty country uh egypt uh he did a lot for them uh although i don't think he went through uh, uh, followed through on a lot of other stuff uh, he has done a lot for Russia, but I don't. Russia tends to pull the rug out from under you after when it's time to collect on your favors or poison you. One of the two. One of the two. <laughs> yeah, or you end up getting fourth floor window cancer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so the the thing is, is that and you know, and they've said this. We read in the book. Uh, which one was it? Russian roulette. Where this, you know, they were talking about Carter Page and they're like, well, it's simple. We uh, tell him he's important. We get documents from him. Then we tell him to go fuck himself. I mean, that's pretty much <laughs> how how it operates. So we'll uh, see. But he may have already made the deal uh, for his exile. We'll see if uh, whoever, we'll see if they honor it. I just, yeah, I have this vision of him running and knocking on a bunch of doors and nobody opening them. <laughs> Lights off, lights off. Pretend we're not home. It's like yeah. a weird Halloween. Shh, 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 shh. Get down, get down. They'll leave. They'll leave. Wait. We don't have any candy left. They'll leave. It's definitely a monster, but it's not one we want to answer the door for. All right, everybody, we will be right back. I'm going to talk to our Flip It Blue Democratic candidate for California's 8th District, running to flip that seat from red. And her name is Chris Bubzer, and we'll be right back to speak to her. And then later, I'm going to talk to Andrew Torres, and then we're going to do good news again with Dana. So everybody stay with us. We'll be right back. After these messages, we'll be right back. 
Hey everybody, it's AG for The Daily Beans. Today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by The New Yorker. I have been a fan of The New Yorker for so long. I remember picking up my first copy and being drawn in by the art and the design and of course the cartoons. And we here at the podcast are so proud to have their support. The New Yorker has always been there for the best of the best. In print and online, The New Yorker stands apart for its commitment to truth and accuracy, quality writing, and compelling reporting and storytelling. The New Yorker is considered by many to be one of the most influential publications in the world. The New Yorker's weekly print issues, the daily online articles, all of it covers a wide range of topics with something for everyone. You can have politics or news, uh, international affairs, climate change and the environment, pop culture, the arts, fiction, food, humor, and of course, the cartoons. The New Yorker has become the daily digital destination for news and cultural coverage, publishing 10 to 15 exclusive site-only stories every day. In addition to that, you can use their apps, read from the online archive, archive dating all the way back to 1925, solve the crossword puzzles, and more. In both print and online digital issues, The New Yorker has content from the best writers in America today. A couple of my favorite include Emily Nussbaum, who won the Pulitzer for Criticism in 2016, and Doreen St. Felix, who covers the highs and lows of today's culture, won the Ellie Award for columns and commentary in 2019. A 12-week subscription is just $6 and includes home delivery of the print edition every week and unlimited access to the New Yorker website. That's a 50% discount for, for the listeners. And at a limited time, you can get 12 weeks of the New Yorker for just $6. That's a savings of 50%. Plus, listeners of the show will receive an exclusive tote bag for free. So go to newyorker.com slash dailybeans. That's N-E-W-Y-O-R-K-E-R.com slash dailybeans to get 12 weeks of the New Yorker for just $6 and a free tote bag. NewYorker.com slash Daily Beans. All right, everybody, welcome back. It's time to flip it blue. I'm And joining us today for the Flip It Blue segment is Democratic candidate for U.S. Congress in California's 8th District. Uh, Paul Cook currently has the seat, and she's running against Jay Obernolte, and her name is Chris Bubser. Chris, welcome to The Daily Beans. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm so excited to talk to you. This is such a beautiful part of our state. Can you tell us a little bit about the 8th District in California? Where is it, and who lives there? Thank you so much. So California's 8th Congressional District is 33,000 square miles, mostly of wilderness and federal lands. It starts down in the corner near 29 Palms and Joshua Tree National Park and encompasses a lot of San Bernardino County. Then it con- and continues through the Victorville area in the Mojave Desert. We also have a little slice of, of the, well, we have all of the San Bernardino Mountains and a little slice down by Yucaipa and East Thailand, and then continues on all the way through Inyo and Mono counties. So it includes the lands that uh, the indigenous people called Payahunaru, and it also has my hometown of Mammoth Lakes, one of the most special places I've ever been. Oh, you're from Mammoth Lakes. Awesome. Yes, yes. So you know, it's uh, our district is 10 hours from top to bottom. So we have put a lot of miles on my on my Prius. The other thing that's very important to know about this district is it's incredibly diverse because people tend to think of, you know, Eastern California as being all one type of person. But the truth of the matter is that the people who choose to live in our district tend to come because they want to be near wilderness. They want to be able to access all the beauty that is our part of California 
But it's also a lot of young families who have moved up to the Mojave Desert around Victorville because we have really great opportunities for affordable housing. So it's, and there's a lot of veterans and a lot of retirees. So because we have three military bases, we have quite a large veteran and and military population as well. So it is not what people think when they first think about this district. And all of those people really want representation that that represents the diversity that we are in California. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a lot of, uh, I know that it's the, the, you know, unions and jobs and education are very important to the people of the 8th District. Uh, you've got a lot of veterans, like you said, and, and veteran health care is, is a, a priority there. And um, you've worked in biotech. You helped launch some groundbreaking treatments, including therapies that change survival rates for individuals living with HIV and some medication that keeps cancer patients safe through chemotherapy. And you have a lot of really, really interesting uh, experience in, in that in that field. And I'd like to start with what seems to be, from everyone I'm talking about, the number one thing on everyone's mind, which is health care, because currently Republicans and this administration have been voting to get rid of protections of the Affordable Care Act, and they're doing it in court right now, and this is in the middle of a pandemic. So can you talk a little bit about how that's impacted uh, the 8th District and what your plans for health care are? Absolutely. Thank you so much for for the asking that question. You know, first of all, the, there are many reasons that I am in this race, even though I never expected to be running for Congress. But the number one reason is that over a long career in biotech, I saw that we could really save lives. But I also saw firsthand what happened when somebody had to fight with their insurance company to get the care they needed. So a close personal friend. Um, who had cancer and in her early thirties, you know, struggled with having to make the decision of whether she would spend time with her son or fight with the insurance company to get the treatment she needed to, to beat her cancer. My own daughter was diagnosed with epilepsy as a little girl. And the fights that I had to have with the insurance company to get her coverage for things that should have been automatic were appalling to me. And the more I thought about other parents who didn't have the, you know, experience that I did. I was part of my job was to make sure that we got our treatments covered. And the struggles that I faced personally were, as I said, uh, just unfathomable. And the more that I thought about other parents and how they must struggle, the more frustrated I became. So when this administration made it clear that their first order of business was to repeal the Affordable Care Act. I left my career and I went to Washington with people from the disability community. And there I saw firsthand that there were representatives and senators who were never going to have their hearts and minds changed. We had moms of of children who had come on two buses to talk to their senators about why their child could die without their treatment. One of the moms was of a child with epilepsy you know, and they wouldn't take the meetings. And I thought to myself, we have to change who's in these seats. So that's what propelled me to run for this seat because Paul Cook had voted to repeal the Affordable Care Act with no plan in place for what would happen to people who lost their coverage. So now fast forward to the pandemic. Our rural communities are really struggling in this time. At the beginning of the epidemic, Mammoth Lakes was one of the areas that had the highest proportion 
of infection. So it was a it was you know an infection rate that was a proportion of the population, and they had to lock down the county very early on because if we hadn't, our hospital would have been overwhelmed. You know, these little rural hospitals will have maybe two ventilators. When you have a town of 8,000 people and you get a really, you know, quickly developing outbreak, you can be in, in big trouble. So that's what's been happening to us. My plan is to make sure that everyone gets access to quality, affordable health care. There are many ways to get to that. And we can talk about that more if you want to go into detail. But we know that what we need to do as a country to get everybody access to healthcare, And now we just need to make sure that we execute. Yeah. And I also see that you are in support of expanding home care options as well, which I think really helps in rural communities. Oh, absolutely. You know, one of the challenges is that we, and, and look, I've seen this firsthand. My mother um, had dementia. And so I have lived, I have the lived experience of trying to care for my elderly parents who were in Pennsylvania and raise my family and work. And the best thing that you can do for an older person is to keep them in their home for as long as possible. And we have done a terrible job as a country to making that affordable and, and, and possible. I have heard stories that are breaking my heart right now about people who, because I, we've had lots of roundtables and town halls with people from the healthcare community. And there's a provider who's a hospice provider trying to keep people where they'll be better off. But right now with the pandemic and the shortage of home care aids, it's hard to do that. It's been a real struggle for people. So these are real problems that when you look at them very carefully, it helps you understand what the needs are. And then, then we build programs to address them instead of trying to have, uh, you know, one size fits all, because that's just not how people live. No, it's definitely not. And, and you know, because of your work in these treatments and in biotech, that everything kind of comes on a case by case basis. And like you said, it's, we have to have fact-based solutions to help make individuals lives better. And that sort of leads me to the next, um, issue I want to talk about. You know, 900,000 more people have filed for unemployment um, this last week. And this economy under this administration is just in turmoil. And I was hoping you could tell us uh, what you would uh, do in Congress to help uh, get these jobs back and, and get the economy going again. Well, thank you. First of all, the first thing we did at the beginning of the pandemic was hold a series of town halls with people throughout the district who were in the areas of small business that are most impacted. So restaurant owners, for example, and some of the outdoor uh, adventure kinds of rock climbing outfits and all of the different kinds of jobs that are at the intersection of federal lands and our communities, but also in the high desert, you know, as I mentioned, we had a lot of restaurant owners who were struggling to try to get into the PPP program and didn't have a link to the banks that were able to execute really quickly. So one thing that was really heartening for me was that on these calls, we had some businesses 
that had figured out how to navigate the system and they were teaching and explaining other business to other business owners what to do. That said, we also had some, you know, roundtables that we had to cancel because the, the restaurant owners were trying so hard just to stay in business and they didn't have even, you know, the time to spend trying to get help. It was heartbreaking and unnecessary. What needs to happen, first of all, is the funding has to flow from the federal government to state and local governments because we have to be able to shore up all of our budgets so that the services and help that people need is available to them. And, you know, the, the House has passed a bill that would deliver on those needs. And, you know, it's very frustrating to watch while the Senate refuses to take it up. But that is the first thing that needs to happen is the federal government needs to help state and local governments. And, you know, I'm talking to county supervisors and different people in our city governments all throughout the district. And, and we're desperate and we need to take care of that immediately. Yeah. And then you talk about the state and local tax uh, for homeowners that's going on in California, New Jersey, some of the blue states where, you know, we've now got that cap and you've got so many folks who, you know, purchased homes in, in your district because of the affordability that are now priced out because of uh, of these tax, this tax bill put forth by the Republicans that punishes, uh, you know, your residents. And so, uh, you know, we have to we really have to focus on on turning those things around and, and you know, as, as corny or cliche as it sounds, to make the American dream reasonable again so that people can participate in it. Well, absolutely. You, you hit the nail on the head. You know, many people move to our district because the housing prices are affordable in the Victor Valley. And it's a wonderful place to live. That said, you know, I ask people when they talk about taxes, did that tax cut um, in 2017 help you? How are you faring? And certainly you're right. In states like California and New Jersey, where people were punished for homeownership, it's just, um, it's, it's so frustrating that that's the reality that they have to live in. And now with the pandemic on top of it, it's just creating a perfect storm of, you know, struggle for middle-class families who, and working families who are just trying to, you know, uh, put food on the table and, you know, keep the roof over their heads and do the things that, you know, should be absolutely possible in the United States in 2020. And one yeah. thing I'll mention is I've been volunteering at a wonderful um, place called High Desert Second Chance, and it's a food pantry. And, you know, people are lining up at 630 in the morning to get a, a wonderful, you know, opportunity, which is a week's worth of food, really nutritious, um, fresh fruits and vegetables, you know, eggs and milk and all the things you need, but it doesn't open until nine. So it's 110 degrees right now in Hesperia where, or it was, you know, last month. And to sit in your car, you know, for three hours, because that's really like a necessity for you now. Like we are not taking care of Americans the way we need to in this crisis. No, and we're also not taking care of our public lands. And you have quite a bit in in your your massive district there. Can you talk about a little a little bit about what you plan on fighting for and against uh, with regards to those public lands? Absolutely. 
So as I mentioned, our district is 33,000 square miles. It's about 60% federal land. So we have the challenges that, you know, are very um, obvious on the face of it. First of all, you know, the southern part of our district is beautiful, pristine desert. And, you know, people think that a desert is just a, a wasteland. But if you've ever spent time in the desert, you know that in every square inch, there's just an amazing amount of life. And we can learn so much from our deserts in terms of how to survive. So that needs to be protected. And we have so many wonderful environmental groups and advocacy groups and land trusts who are fighting every day to protect that part of our district. Then you have the Kayahunadu, which is also known as the Owens Valley. And that's an area where, you know, you may recall that that's where the LADWP bought up all the land and created the aqueduct to bring the water to Southern California. And so there's a tension there because we want to make sure that that Los Angeles and Southern California gets the water they need. But people in that part of the state need to understand that we need to care for Paihunadu and the Eastern Sierra. For example, if a fire, and this is a real uh, scenario, two weeks ago, the Creek Fire, which has um, started on the Fresno side of the Sierra, if it had come over the Sierra and come down into the town of Mammoth Lakes, and Mammoth Lakes were to burn like many towns have, the watershed that feeds the aqueduct that brings 33% of Southern California's water would be contaminated. So what our district can show people is that we are all interconnected. And if we don't protect our wilderness and federal lands, even though they may seem far away or it may seem hypothetical, it can have immediate impact on other people. So it's not just about, you know, us wanting to make sure that the, the forest stays, you know, beautiful for future generations, which matters tremendously to me, but it's, it's a more practical and day-to-day -day effect. And I talk to the Mono County supervisors all the time and, you know, they say, we need to get you into office because we need somebody to bring funding to these places. Right now they struggle having the resources they need to do the most basic forest management, let alone, you know, optimizing it. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of times when this administration criticizes California for not doing the right things, I think it's a little short-sighted considering these are federal lands and should be managed with federal dollars. <laughs> well, that's the only place the funding can come from. So it's, it's, <laughs> a, it's, a, it's, it's almost silly. And, you know, I, I just am always shocked when I hear that. It, it, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. And speaking of things not making sense, uh, let's talk about uh, really briefly, I've got about another minute here. I want to talk about education and veterans in your district, because these things are tied together, uh, you know, because uh, when veterans come out of the military, they need to get the health care that they need from the VA. When they retire, they need to, um, you know, have, ensure that their veterans home is a safe uh, and, and funded place. And we also need to make sure that we get our veterans jobs and and that we educate them, uh, you know, as, as a promise uh, that we we gave them with the with the GI Bill. So can you just talk a little bit briefly about veterans and education? Absolutely. Veterans in our district, you know, we have, as I said, we have about double the rate of veterans in our district of most typical congressional districts 
because of our bases at 29 Palms, Fort Irwin, and then Fort George, uh, which is closed now, but there's quite a lot of veterans. And the first thing that we did was create a veterans advisory board so that we would understand what the issues and needs are. And our veterans advisory council has been there for us every step of the way, helping us see what the challenges are for veterans in rural areas. So for example, our VA is too far away. There is a clinic, but if you are having a cardiac event in the high desert, your choice is to go to the local hospital and potentially face a surprise medical bill or take the risk to drive all the way down to Loma Linda. These are choices that no one should ever have to make. Our veterans home in Barstow is at risk of being closed. And my opponent says that he has tried to protect it. But the truth is he voted against every bill or every budget that would have allowed that to remain funded. So these are the kinds of things that it is just unacceptable that we're allowing to go on. And, you know, the main thing is, as I've said before, we have to make sure that we look at issues that affect real people and then solve those challenges in practical ways that actually address what they need. So, you know, our veterans need education, then we need to make sure that our local community college has the programs they need. And if they need to go farther away, that we have funding to make it possible for them to get that education so that they can transition um, out of the military and continue to thrive. Absolutely. As a veteran, thank you for that. Uh, I appreciate your support of a fully funded VA and access to education and health care, especially for the Southern California veterans and the veterans in your district as well. Um, they deserve the best. Uh, they are not suckers and losers. They are heroes. Absolutely. <laughs> so and we have so many heroes in my district, and I'm grateful for every single one of them. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much. Uh, before I let you go, where can listeners find you online to support, contribute to, or volunteer for your campaign. We have a lot of folks who love to do text banking and phone banking, love to contribute and support to Flip Seats Blue. So uh, where can where can listeners find that information? That's great. So it's www.chrisbubser.com and it's C-H-R-I-S B as in boy U, B as in boy S-E-R.com and slash volunteer will get you to all of our phone banks. We love our phone bankers. There's also opportunities for text banking there. And then finally, I would be so grateful to everyone if they would go to that page, watch our TV commercial about my, with my daughter talking about um, how I'd fight for all kids' health care. Please watch our uh, launch video called Travelogue that takes three minutes and shows the beauty of our district we shot that in one day in 14 hours. We went from Mona Lake at sunrise to Joshua Tree at sunset. So I'd be so honored if people would have a look and, and support us in any way you can, because, you know, this is what democracy looks like when a group of people from an area that's been overlooked fight for, you know, better representation themselves. We have 1,400 volunteers who are actively supporting us and working to, to create our own representation. So thank you. All right. Thanks so much. We'll be watching the 8th District race very closely. I appreciate you spending time with us. Democratic candidate for California's 8th District, Chris Bubser. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much, Allison. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back with the interview. Stay with us. Hey, everybody, it's AG. Healthy snacks have a very bad reputation. Let's be honest, they don't taste very good, and they don't fill you up. They're kind of meh. Uh, they don't satisfy your cravings either. 
But this helping of daily beans is brought to you by Monk Pack. They have cracked the code when it comes to making snacks that taste amazing, but have no like close to no sugar and like are perfect for keto. They're the Monk Pack Keto Nut and Seed Bars. They contain less than one gram of sugar, two to three grams of net carbs, that's it. And they're only 150 calories. They're great for anyone who's following the keto lifestyle. They're the perfect snack if you want to eat better or cut back on sugar and carbs without sacrificing taste. Uh, I have been trying to eat better. I often get tripped up by my snacking. Uh, you know, that often takes, it's, it's really hard to snack healthily, especially on keto. But since I've been having the Monk Pack Keto Nut and Seed Bars, it's really helped. They have a perfect balance of sweet and salty, and they are crunchy, which you know you need that crunch sometimes because they have whole nuts and seeds. But they're also soft and chewy and delicious, and they come in amazing flavors like pecan almond and sea salt dark chocolate. My favorite right now is the sea salt dark chocolate. It's so good. And they're packed with protein. They're filling also. They're satisfying. They're wonderful. Perfect snack to indulge your sweet tooth without guilt. In addition to being keto-friendly, they're also gluten-free, plant-based, non-GMO, no soy, no trans fats, no sugars or alcohols, and no artificial colors. So enjoy Monk Pack Keto Nut and Seed Bars while working, running errands, after a workout. Try it for yourself. We have a special deal for listeners. Get 20% off your first purchase of any Monk Pack product by visiting monkpack.com and entering code DAILYBEANS at checkout. To get started, go to monkpack.com. That's M-U-N-K-P-A-C-K.com and select any product. Then enter code DAILYBEANS at checkout to save 20% off your whole purchase. Monk Pack, good food you can count on. And we thank them for sponsoring the podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Joining me today for the interview is real life lawyer, real life friend, and uh, co-host of the Opening Arguments podcast, Andrew Torres. Hello, friend. How are you? Uh, well, I'm glad you know which one of those three qualifications is most important to me. Um, <laughs> I am super excited to be back on the show. How are you doing, AG? Uh, I'm, mm, <clears throat> I'm good. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that took a bit to get there, but I believe you. I choked it question, out. Question mark. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean we, you know, 14 days to go. We it's we're getting so close and the news is just bananas, but I saw this pop up today and I thought it was really important <laughs> and I wanted to talk to you about it because I figured who better to give us a little history on Obergefell, but both sides of the Obergefell face, or case have, have come out against the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett. And I was hoping you could give us a little background and tell us why that is so... That's just why that's news. It's big news. <laughs> <laughs> Look, so it is big news. And the the plot twist, I think is not really the story, right? That it's, it's both sides for reasons that I'm about to explain in a minute, but the underlying argument, right? That Amy Coney Barrett will provide this court with a clean right wing activist five justice majority that does not care at all about precedent and possibly a six, three basis to overturn her burger I've, I have read, uh, bits from, uh, Chief Justice Roberts' bitterly sarcastic dissent in Obergefell on this show before. So uh, counting on Justice Roberts to grant heavy weight of precedent on a case that is five years old that he described as having n not being grounded in the law uh, five years ago, I, I think would have been optimism to begin with. And it's it's going to be gone if if Amy Coney Barrett is confirmed to the Supreme Court and the Democrats don't do anything about that. So I'm absolutely 100% pleased to see this in in making the press. This is an issue that I have been worried about 
even uh, uh, with Ginsburg on the court and, uh, and, and we're right to be sounding the alarm. So what, what, what happened here? How did we get both Obergefell and the opposite number, Rick Hodges, the former Ohio uh, director of the Department of Health uh, on the same side? You might recall Bill Clinton, 1996, signed the Federal Defensive Marriage Act which said that the federal government did not have to recognize same-sex marriages if they were enacted at the state level. In the run-up to George W. Bush's re-election campaign in 2004, when he was a gigantic disaster, part of their strategic plan to get him re-elected was in every swing state to put state-level defensive marriage acts on the ballot as a way to motivate bigots who would then go to the polls, vote bigotedly to keep gays from getting married in their state, uh, and also uh, then pull the lever for George W. Bush. It worked. He was narrowly reelected. One of those states, the, the I believe the closest state, was it was put green on the map on election night, but then uh, uh, John Kerry quickly conceded the next morning was Ohio and Ohio enacted in that 2004 uh, election a a state defensive marriage act which said that they did not have to recognize same-sex marriages from other states. So that's the bad 2000s. Uh fast forward to 2013, this is 2 years before Obergefell, um a case that uh, people don't know quite as well. It's it's it was Equally sort of surprising and groundbreaking, also 5-4, also an Anthony Kennedy decision, a case called U.S. versus Windsor, which struck down the Defense of Marriage Act uh, under the, the Fifth Amendment and said, no, um, if however states define marriage, the federal government can't uh, refuse to recognize those marriages just because like people in the 90s thought gay people were icky. Um, I, that's the, 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 the technical legal analysis in that case. Um, and so 2013, the federal government, the, the U S Supreme court struck down the federal defensive marriage acts, but that left in place all of these state defensive marriage acts. And by 2015, like 35 states had recognized same sex marriage. Like we come a long way in those 20 years. And so Jim Obergefell and, uh, his partner, uh, who was dying of ALS, um, went uh, to uh, they got married in Maryland uh, but were living in Ohio and wanted to list uh, Obergefell as uh, his uh, husband's uh, 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 next of kin on the death certificate and the Ohio Department of Health applying the law said no our our, our state doma prevents us from recognizing this marriage and that consolidated with a bunch of other cases is what went up and became Obergefell versus Hodges. So, and the Supreme court, uh, reversed and said, no, you, you cannot, that the, that the state defensive marriage acts, uh, were also unconstitutional and it struck down state marriage bans nationwide. That's why that was the landmark decision. And so the important thing there is as far as I can tell, Rick Hodges, Republican, right? Uh, but post Obergefell versus Hodges has made several public appearances with Jim Obergefell and said, I, look, like, uh, it, you know, it was my job to apply the law. I, I did apply the law, but, but I'm happy I lost. And I think that, um, it's, 
uh, you know, it was it was best for society that I lost. So it's not surprising to see Obergefell and Hodges teaming up. Um, that's a little bit on the background of that. What I love about this is, and, and and it's what I want to drive home to your listeners, my listeners, everybody, this nonsense that the right wing is is funneling out that we don't care about the political ideology and consequences of a Supreme Court justice is utterly unmoored in our nation's history, right? Like we should and do care about justices who have extreme political and judicial views that are way outside of the mainstream. It is not just a question of, is this person a smart person? If that were the case, Robert Bork would have been on the Supreme Court 40 years ago. If that were the case, Amy Coney Barrett would be on the Supreme Court. Look, she was number one at Notre Dame Law School. Like she's clearly a smart person. She is academically qualified to be on the court. But you know who else is academically qualified to be on the Supreme Court? Uh, my old law professor, Duncan Kennedy, who heads up the critical legal studies department at Harvard, right? Like he's a genius, but the reason he's not on the Supreme Court is because he thinks that law has no fixed answers, right? <laughs> and and so that therefore every decision is an act of pure political, uh, you know, is, is a purely political act, right? Um, uh, similarly, uh, Richard Delgado, for example, who thinks that, and again, he's 100% right about this, right? He thinks that white privilege should be analyzed as a form of property, right? Like, he's super correct. He's unbelievably brilliant. Um, if either and, and and Kennedy and Delgado and hundreds of far left wing legal scholars would never make it onto a Joe Biden shortlist for the Supreme Court, they would it would it, the right would be uniform in saying, well, look, like you, you have to believe in some kind of mainstream theory of jurisprudence to be on the Supreme Court. And 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 they would be correct. Right. Like, I, I, I do not think Duncan Kennedy or myself or Randall Delgado should be on the Supreme Court. But if that rule applies on the left, it should apply on the right. Yeah, that's that's why we put up nominees like Merrick Garland instead of Amy Coney Barrett. Yeah, exactly right. And and I, I've I've mentioned this before. It, it it bears repeating what you are seeing. And, and I love you and I talked about this offline, but. Uh, Sheldon Whitehouse, I think, was the only effective Democrat in, in the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee in, in terms of questioning. He has done more than anyone in the Senate in exposing that the judicial philosophy of originalism is not an umpire, call, you know, neutral calling balls and strikes, but that repeatedly that 76 out of 79 five, four cases with political implications, uh, in the Roberts court up until 2017, right? So they're still collecting and adding data onto that 76 of 79, the court reached the conservative political outcome. So you've got, you've got two ways that you can deal with that. Either you can think that all of our founding fathers were really conservative Ted Cruz style Republicans, or that modern Republicans are using a judicial philosophy to pull puppet strings and pretend that long dead white guys agree with what they think. I, I, I know where I come out. <laughs> um, and, 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 and think about how preposterous this is to ask lawyers to do, right? Like, like, like why is Amy Coney Barrett academically qualified to be on the Supreme Court, right? Like, because she's really, really smart and has read a ton of cases and is capable of looking at 
our nation's legal history at past cases, at current laws, and constructing arguments and, and evaluating arguments based on that. Amy Cody Barrett does not have a degree in history. She does not have a degree in archaeology or ancient documents or like like the stuff that you would need to do to understand what Alexander Hamilton thought when he penned a, a particular clause. Like those are not skills that are in a lawyer's toolkit, right? Even super smart lawyers toolkits like um if i i suppose if we were nominating a bunch of historians to be supreme court justices then then you might say like lawyers we would expect lawyers to be good at figuring out the original intent of the founding fathers and like why would you expect lawyers to be good at that we're not we're not historians <laughs> <laughs> no but um, they're making history regardless. However, I think that the, I mean, really, she's going to get confirmed. And so the only thing we can really do is to continue to pressure our senators to not vote, maybe shake up their, uh, their donors. I mean, and then, of course, we can all we can look at this appointment and it's legality, I suppose. It's constitutionality in the next term. Uh but I mean, she's going through. I think you know, you and I have discussed this before. It's 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 expansion of the federal bench that is really going to be the way around, not around it. But yeah, I I, I think that's right. But but let me say, I think it, there's a little more than theater going on here, right? And and we we talked about this the last time I was on the show. But to me, it is very telling that first question, first answer, most prepared Donald Trump in that. Uh, whatever you would call that first debate when asked what about appointing Amy Coney Barrett to the, uh, to the Supreme court, you know, after people have already voted for your opponent in a political election. And, and essentially his answer was, well, look, like I got the power, man. I'm the, I'm the president. I got Mitch McConnell over there in the Senate. We're going to ram this through and you can't stop us. And it's true. We can't stop them. But the more that, the we force the Republicans to articulate that their justification is we have the power, the more all of their protests will ring hollow in January of 2021, right? Because what what are their arguments right now about expanding the Supreme Court? Well, this is unprecedented. We haven't done this since 1875. And you're like, yeah, okay, right? Uh, your, your whole Amy Cody Barrett thing we hadn't done, uh, ever. So, uh, we got the power now. Um, so suck it. And, and, and usually, I, I know, usually, right. Democrats have not been on the suck it side of the equation, uh, in, in the past 30 years. Usually Democrats, usually people like me, I, I, I am, as I've said on the show, I'm on record on videotape on various programs, uh, you know, arguing against court packing in 2017. Um, it, 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 I was wrong about that, right? Like wh when you are dealing with folks who only abide by norms when it benefits them, uh, it's time to say that that those norms don't don't have any precedential value anymore, right? It's time to say, okay. And they don't serve the people. The when the norms yeah. stop serving the people, you got to change the norms. So I'm with yeah, you on that. That's, that's right. And and look, like we have, I, I I think part of it is viewing historically, like uh, it was right seeing the documents, the Hofeller documents come out, right, and and reading in black and white that was the how to benefit white people hard drive that uh yeah everyone uh, so you know it, uh, hofeller's daughter <laughs> by the way uh handed over all of his uh you know all of his research basically 
Uh, and not basically, like literally saying, here's how we disenfranchise black voters with gerrymandering and here's how you do it in specific states. And and that was the, those were the whole fuller documents. Yep. And those uh, cast <laughs> what was the decisive vote in the uh, in the Ross case right, involving not adding a citizenship question to the census uh, again. In a in an Amy Coney Barrett world, that case would have been uh, at least five four the other way, mm-hmm. and uh, and might not have gotten Roberts uh, if he would not have been the decisive vote. Um, when you read those documents, and you see the degree to which, beginning in two thousand, that beginning in the run up to to, to two thousand, that Republicans acknowledged. We are a minority white people's party in a nation where demographically those trends are never going to put us back in the majority again ever. And how do we cling to power as long as possible? And this is uh, controlling the judiciary again uh, has legal precedent, right? Uh, dating back to the 18th century with the Federalist Party dying out at the uh, national level, but controlling the judiciary for 30 years because Federalists uh, got to name the, uh, all of the original appointees under the Federal Judiciary Act of 1796. So, uh, that's what they're doing again, right? At every level, the game is how do we maintain as as Republicans, right? How how do they maintain uh, controls of the lever of power, the levers of power, despite being a minority party comprised pretty much only of white guys? And um, that's that's what we're up against. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for the good news, Andrew. No. <laughs> <laughs> look, look, it's worth, like I said, I want to say it again. I know I'm not, I'm generally not a, a bearer of good news. There are, there are other good news out there, but um, it, it it's worth the, it is worth making them work for this, right? Yes, it is yes. worth not saying, oh, well, Barrett's going in regardless. So, you know, screw it. I'm just going to spend my time uh, in the Senate Judiciary Committee grandstanding or making speeches or being Diane Feinstein and complimenting Ugh. someone for getting basic civ pro questions, right? Like uh, it, it, th- there are lots of things that, you know, when, when somebody is trying to cheat, like, running around and screaming and pointing and saying they're cheaters, they're cheaters, they're cheaters has value in a society that still has democratic accountability. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll keep doing it. Hair on fire. Uh, don't <laughs> worry. Go. Don't worry about it. And uh, I mean, worry about it, but don't worry about us. Yeah. <laughs> We're yeah. going to keep screaming it from the rooftops. Uh, yes. She's going to get pushed through. Probably we have ways to, to sort of uh, respond to that, but stop, like, don't stop being loud about it. And, and I think it's going to pay off, uh, you know, next year, we'll see what happens with, with Kavanaugh and, and Barrett. But the fact that you were loud has, speaks a lot, speaks volumes, but you know, literally and figuratively. So thank you. Thank you so much, uh, everyone. You have to check out the opening arguments podcast if you haven't. And uh, if you don't, have a chance to become real life friends with real life lawyer Andrew Torres. You should, you should fix your life and make that happen. So thank you so much for talking to me today, Andrew. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a blast. <laughs> we'll talk soon. Everybody stick around right after this. We'll have the good news. Stay with us. 
Hey everybody, it's AG. One unexpected side effect of this year, it feels like fast fashion has disappeared. Uh, I don't know about you, but I don't even know what is in style right now. And when shopping for new, new clothes these days, do what I do. Don't buy for now, buy forever. So for timeless pieces that will last a lifetime of wear, that never go out of style, check out Fairty. Fairty makes high quality, comfortable clothing for life. They're sustainably minded, designing products with thoughtful focus on fabric, and every piece is made to last a lifetime, guaranteed. Fairty is committed to community and the environment in all that they do. They regularly donate to the Surfrider Foundation, which I love, and 1% for the planet. The company is run by the Fairty family, and they're very hands-on in ensuring everything they do lives up to their values. I love the women's clothes from Fairty. I describe their style as casual but elegant. Some of my favorite pieces right now are the Paloma Duster Cardigan. It's so comfy. The cream-colored Ashbury Sherpa jacket and the Kai Cashmere sweater. So check out their website. Their clothes are gorgeous. Buying forever is the smartest way to shop. And now is the smartest time to do it. Right now you can get 25% off your next Fairty purchase when you go to fairtybrand.com slash beans. That's Fairty, F-A-H-E-R-T-Y brand.com slash beans for 25% off. Fairtybrand.com slash beans. All right, everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Hey, Dana, you ready for this? I am. I love the good news. It always leaves me with a nice, fuzzy, warm feeling before I have to go on with the rest of my day. Agreed. And and uh, everyone, thank you so much for sending in your good news stories. If you have any good news, personal or political, or you can just make some shit up at this point, really, I'd be fine with that. Uh, fictional good news stories, send them in at uh, dailybeanspod.com. You can also send us your corrections if I've made any mistakes during the show and any quarantine confessions you might have or any literally anything you want to do. Always, always feel free to attach a picture of your pod pets. Uh, we will include them in the newsletter unless you tell us not to. Oh, and by the way, you remember a couple weeks ago when Joe Biden put out the dog video? We need yes. a new, we need a dotus. Let's put Champ and Major in the White House. Did you see the cat one today? You're I cat did. Person. You know, but listen, I'm not dead inside. I love cats. I just am really allergic to them. Like I'm the worst lesbian in the world. Oh. I'm allergic to cats. Um, yeah. So I love them. And the, the, that ad was also adorable. Adorable. It was. It made my day. We're going to win this election with dogs and cats. God damn it. Well, you know what? That should be their, their motto. Like, let's put a pet back in the White House. And then in parentheses, yeah. like, other than Mitch McConnell. Like, I don't know. Like, oh, <laughs> whatever yeah. his lap dog. Lap dog Lindsay. Yeah. Lap dog Lindsay. Um, mm-hmm. They call him, what is this? The little uh, sucker fish or the, I don't know. I can't remember what it's called. Anyway, yeah. Uh, a different kind of animal, the kind that you want. It's hard to tell whether Lindsay's a sucker fish or a blowfish, but it's, you know, on any given day. <laughs> I like when you do that because you're like, I'm not supposed to laugh at that, but it was really funny. <laughs> uh, rumors are, uh, we're not going to talk about that. Um, nope, nope. Stay in the closet. I don't care where you are. I don't want you on my team, even if you are. Oh, very good. We, my friend and I, for, for, decades now we play a game called your team <laughs> that's funny oh my god i do that too <gasps> i do that with my friends yes with your friend and you like point over there at that guy and you're like hey he's on your team your team we just say your team we aren't allowed to play at the swap meet or at uh <laughs> disneyland uh or the fair the county fair <laughs> oh my it's god just... it's too easy yeah it's, it's like fish fair. in a barrel 
Exactly. Uh, all right. Anyway, first up, thank you for sending your good news. Dailybeanspod.com. Click contact. Uh, next, uh, first, I should say, from anonymous, pronoun she and her. My good news story is something that my family has been looking forward to for more than four months. My mom was diagnosed in April with liver disease and placed on the transplant list. She spent three weeks in the hospital and then came home to my house since I have been lucky enough to work from home since the beginning of the pandemic shutdown. Listen to that. I'm sorry to break here, but listen to that phrase. Since I have been lucky enough to work from home since the beginning of the pandemic shutdown. I mean, this is these are our times, you know. And it's just such incredible people, supportive people. Um, In mid-June, she began having respiratory complications and was hospitalized again. Within days, she was intubated and spent more than three months on a ventilator, then a track collar, all while still battling the terrible effects of -of end-of-life liver disease. And to make matters even worse, this all took place during the peak of the Houston COVID-19 crisis. So visits primarily consisted of family Zoom visits. Until I enlisted the help of Disability Rights Texas to successfully gain access as her caretaker. Against all odds, and after more end-of-life family conversations than I care to relive, I am proud to report that my mom was released last Thursday. She's back home, and while she still has a long road ahead of her to get the life-saving transplant, it's just so wonderful to see how far she's come and be able to reunite with my dad, her hubs of 45 years, and my four other siblings. She is truly a badass. Anyway, I love the show. Please send all the good vibes you can spare uh, our way as we keep pushing forward. Wow. Thank you to whoever you are that wrote this in. I am sending every ounce that I have. I'm so glad she's okay. So far, Same, so good. same. Three months on a ventilator. Wow. God. Oh. Hugs to your entire family. It does. It puts everything into perspective. I mean, it does. When people it really are like, does. how are you? I'm like, you know what? I'm okay. I'm I'm okay. I'm okay. <sighs> All right, we've got more good news though, which I love. This is from Barb, pronoun she and her. Think and Blue is a career website, Think LinkedIn, for trade, blue collar service and essential workers. It's called Think and Blue. Oh, cool. Yes. Cool. Now that we are funded, I'm able to launch the site, hire people, start building our community and provide blue collar and service workers the same quantity and quality of online career tools that are commonplace for white collar professionals. Yes, this is awesome. At the beginning of 2020, I, along with two other people, co-founded Think and Blue. I am a woman of a certain age. I love that. Over in parentheses. (laughs) I'm over 50 and younger than 60. Uh, (laughs) Who has worked in tech startups for the last 20 years, but I've never founded a startup. So this journey has been equally familiar and not familiar. In the early days of the pandemic, we were in building mode. So the quarantine actually worked for us understandably. Now, as the calendar moved in the summer months, we started fundraising. And as anyone who has raised money for a startup knows, the hard work starts when you start fundraising and we face Mm -hmm. some unique challenges, I bet. One, we are not in Silicon Valley. And parentheses, no one knew me or my background, even though I had been working in startup land for years. And the second thing, number two, my startup focuses on blue collar and service workers, something Silicon Valley doesn't know a lot about. And three, third, I know as the only co-founder with a startup experience, I'm an older woman who is building a startup in the blue collar industrial space. Undeterred, I kept pushing and landing us our first big outside investor. Yes, we got funded and we are moving forward. Congratulations, Barb. I love this. This is awesome. Nice. That is awesome. So women of a certain age, between 50 and 60, can 
get startup seed money and can do stuff for the blue collar industry. This is fucking incredible. That's so great. I'd love to see it. I know. I love, love the to idea too. What an incredible idea. The service industry is just, I have so many friends. I was in the service industry forever. Me too. It is packed full of the most incredible, creative, hardworking people you will ever meet. And they, they make shit wages in most states because like we talked about earlier in the A block, you know, they don't, they, they, it's not required to have minimum wage plus tips for tip earning employees. They can't get unemployment. And, you know, these essential frontline, incredible workers, wonderful people. And so to have these kind of resources for them, they will make you and they will do so much for you. And, and I'm so, so excited. Thank you so much, Barb. This is so exciting. Uh, Next up from Adrian from Brisbane. He pronouns he and him. Hi, ladies. Love the show. Not sure if this is good news or a confession. I'm a 43-year-old guy. I train in Brazilian jiu-jitsu and boxing, watch UFC, and love rugby. I am an Aussie. All right, Adrian. I'm interested. Keep Tell talking. me more. <laughs> I also love Animal Crossing. I bought it two weeks ago to entertain my seven-year-old daughter and 10-year-old son when I have custody on the weekends. Oh, divorced. I see. Uh, when I... <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. I am a woman of a certain age. Um... When I have custody on the weekends, when I have to study near exam time, I'm back full time at uni after a 20 year break. I play every day and take care of my kids' characters' gardens as well as my own. I play as their characters too to keep them progressing, even though my son hates the game. My daughter and I play together. She loves playing it with me, and it's awesome bonding time. I've already added a room to my house. Nice. And I have a lovely garden with pumpkins and tulips. Wonderful. On a serious note, I went through an extremely difficult divorce two years ago and experienced a deep depression and was unemployed for over a year. Now I have a better relationship with the kids than I've ever had. I'm studying full-time and work part-time within the industry I'm studying, land surveying. For anyone out there struggling, you don't always have to be moving forward. Sometimes it's just enough to exist. If you'd have told me two years ago I'd be back at uni studying a degree that's heavy in math, of all things, I tell you that's impossible. Stick around and ride it out. This too shall pass. You know... Adrian, I have to say, with the for a little Animal Crossing metaphor for you, with you tending your garden of pumpkins and tulips, and then moving into say, you know, you don't always have to be moving forward. We, I've done so many management seminars and leadership seminars for servant leadership. It's called "Bloom Where You're Planted." Nice. Sometimes is what they say. So this whole metaphor with the Animal Crossing sprinkled in and you tending your kids' gardens is just, it's chef's kiss and and best of luck to you. I was going to say, you know, Adrian, if you're ever ready to put yourself out there again, I want you to take this submission and make it your profile on whatever dating app you use because this is so beautifully, vulnerably written You'd mm-hmm. have 500 responses, including, I think, one from Allison in your inbox <laughs> by the end of the yeah, you day. Had me, you had me and hello. Uh, <laughs> well, maybe at Aussie. But uh, no, for reals, this is so good. I know. Yeah, this is incredible. Good folks out there. Mm, I love it. All right. We got more good news. This one comes from Kat, pronouns she and her. Greetings from north of the border. I'm a Canadian. I like that we're going across the world now. I'm a Canadian who spent many years living in the States. By the way, I meant across from Australia, not across from the United States. I'm... (laughs) 
I think some people are like, Dana needs to work on her geography. We're not editing <laughs> We're not editing that out, but I am going to start over. Okay, greetings like from it. north of the border. I'm a Canadian who spent many years living in the States working for social justice organizations. Your podcast has been my lifeline for me. I was, of course, really glad that Amy is feeling the love here in Canada. I'm a big fan of Amy. Whoop, whoop. But... It bothers me that the people think of what's happening in the United States is far removed from what's happening here, so I wanted to offer a quasi-correction. Canadians would do well to avoid the knee-jerk reaction of feeling sorry for, or worse, making fun of our American neighbors. Let's be real. First, in many urban centers... Um, in Canada, COVID is far from under control. Numbers are rising exponentially, and there's a crisis of leadership in provinces like Ontario. Second, hate does not stop at the border. The founder of the Proud Boys is a Canadian, and that group is just one example of organized hatred and white supremacy in this country. In my home city, police have stood by while hate groups violently disrupted pride celebrations. Growing anti-mass movements are a threat to public safety. The Conservative Party recently elected a new leader whose campaign slogan was, Take Canada Back. Canada is not a progressive utopia. It's far from it. People who value human rights, justice, and compassion need to stand together and support each other on either side of the border. Canadians can't afford to think we are immune from autocracy. And speaking of borders, Russian aggression in the Arctic should be worrisome to Americans and Canadians alike. Uh, But that's a whole nother rant. On a good note, I am so very happy to hear the submission from an anonymous listener whose birthday is on election day because it's my birthday too. (laughs) It's my birthday too, yeah. It's gonna be a good day. All right, a good time. Yep. All right, all right. She she continues. I'm part of the lesser known micro generation called Xennials. 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 I wasn't sure if that X was pronounced like Xerox. Okay, right, like Xavier. Yeah. I'm a little bit digital, a little bit analog. I feel like this is also a wrap. I'm a little bit digital. I'm a little bit analog. And on this or, November yeah. 3rd, I'll be turning 40. Or that's a country a, song, right? That's true. I'm a little bit digital. I'm, I'm a little, little bit, bit analog. analog. All right. On November 3rd, uh, <laughs> be turning 40. A huge thank you to Anonymous for sharing and greetings to all lovers of democracy born on that day too. I think I'll follow Anonymous's lead and celebrate on a different day, maybe under the Halloween full moon. We Scorpios got to use all of our witchy powers for good now more than ever. Much love, Beans Ladies. Thank you for keeping me sane and armed with facts. I love this whole thing because, you know, I do know that right now Canada feels like the neighbor living above a meth lab, but... There's also some stuff going on uh, up north that it's nice to see people. You know, we've got the racism here in the U.S. And, you know, Canada wasn't exactly kind to the indigenous people. Like, this goes hand in hand. And I think when we remember our shared experiences and maybe don't look down on others, it helps us move forward. So I love this submission. Thank you so much. Ah. Uh, yes. And next up from Anomalous, we have two left. And we'll hit these real quick here. Um, no pronouns given. They say, uh, this isn't political or anything, but after installing blink cameras around the house, my wife and I have been enjoying seeing all the wildlife captured on camera. The cameras have captured deer, opossums, cats, a family of raccoons, spiders, birds, hornets, a dog, and a fox. The fox is what I want to tell you about. We noticed that the poor fox was a bit mangy looking. After some discussion, we came to the conclusion that this fox wouldn't survive the winter without any fur, so we had to figure some way of helping it. We looked up how to treat a fox with uh, ivermectin. Uh, and we're able to successfully dose it two weeks apart. Now, almost a month later, two months later, we're happy to see a healthy fox on our camera. Oh, my goodness. Oh, 
There's the first picture with no fur, and then there's the. F- <gasps> I need to know fox. how they did this. Did they put it in a water bowl? Like, did the did the fox go and you know what I mean? Like, did you catch the fox and inject it? I don't understand. I need to know more. Probably took little chunks of meat and cheese and rolled up a pill inside of it and left maybe. it out there for him. I think that's what they do for Donald. So maybe it works on foxes. <laughs> who's gonna pill the donald Uh, i don't want to rub that throat i really don't want to rub his throat (laughs) oh my god these are great pictures those are wonderful i love that who's our what's our uh, last submission all right this is from anonymous pronouns i am an heir uh first i want to thank my patron sponsor i've loved listening to the mary trump book club while watching maga hat wearing trump bees flout our store's clearly stated mask requirements uh it helps it helps keep me from exploding at them and losing my job. Oh, oh God. Also loved joining the live news discussions last week. Quarantine has found my sister and her son's homeless. Oh, my God. Oh. <sighs> Luckily, Dad and I are in a position to let them stay in our living room and help her recover from surgery while she looks for work in a new place to stay. The boys are chaos incarnate, and I try to remember to help give her a break from them occasionally. But the part I most love is that my BF, my best friend, and I have been spending a lot of time with her 14-year-old puppy, Alia. Oh, oh, that's very cool. It might be Alia. You Alia, can send in a correction, Alia or Alia. But either way, that's a beautiful name. 14-year-old puppy is oh, the important part. I love it. I know. That's what I'm going to say. When I'm, a four- I'm going to be a 14-year-old puppy. Boys are a terror. Uh, I can't remember who said it, but they said you can um, uh, measure the amount of damage done by boys in dollars. <laughs> I, uh, I, my, my girlfriend uh, has a, a 14-year-old that I don't really know, think they understand money. But like you just said, they in dollars. And the 14-year-old was like, Mom, can I have this $3,000 backpack? And she said, what does it come with? And I'm in the other room and I'm like, what, wait, what does it, it come with? It better come with $2,958 inside of it is what it better come with. It's a $3,000 backpack. <laughs> uh, it better come with a rugby player from Australia in it or something. Something. That's all I'm saying. Uh, all right. Well, thank you so much for sending in your good news stories. Again, you can do that at dailybeanspod.com. Click on contact. Do you have any final thoughts before we get out of here, Dana? Yeah. Final thoughts. Two weeks. Hang in there. Two weeks. Get out if you haven't voted vote early do not let them keep you from that got to vote numbers too big to manipulate keep it going yes yes vote as soon as you are able to vote uh and thank you and until tomorrow everybody please take care of yourselves take care of each other take care of the planet and take care of your mental health i've been ag and i have been dg and them's the beans the daily beans is executive produced and directed by ag and jordan coburn and engineered and edited by Mackenzie mazell and starburns industries Our marketing manager, executive assistant, production and social media direction is Amanda Reeder. Fact-checking and research by A.G., Jordan Coburn, and Amanda Reeder. Our music is written and performed by They Might Be Giants. Our web design and branding are by Joelle Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. And our website is dailybeanspod.com.